Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a follow there. Tap a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow there. Hit that notification bell to never miss an episode. Uh, today on the podcast episode we're having, we are honored to have Dr. Kevin Chapman with us. He is a distinguished clinical psychologist and the founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Dr. Chapman is renowned for his expertise in evidence-based treatment of anxiety and related disorders. His work is not only grounded in rigorous research, but also demonstrates significant success in treating a range of disorders, and that includes OCD, panic, phobias, social anxiety, and even PTSD. Uh, his contributions to the field, particularly in tailoring treatments to meet diverse needs, makes him a much sought-after expert, speaker, and certainly a beacon of hope for those struggling with all of these challenges. So we're happy to have him on the show. Dr. Chapman, welcome to Great Story Podcast. Thank you, Nate. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for reaching out to me. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I feel like looking at your stuff, uh, we could have gone so many different ways with, you know, the things that you do, sports, uh, um, anxiety, PTSD, all those things. But we're kind of centering in selfishly, I must say, on on these issues <laughs> when it comes to men. Uh, and yeah. so right out of the gate, I, I'd throw this question over to you. Can you maybe elaborate on the functional nature of anxiety and maybe how it typically manifests in men compared to women? Yeah, of course. That's a question, as you can imagine, Nate, as an FAQ for me, I get that question quite a bit. Uh, it's a great question. So because many people have the misconception that anxiety is a problem or dangerous or threatening and it's something you should be free from, when in reality, anxiety at its core, what I often tell people, Nate, is that anxiety is rarely a problem unless it's chronic. So when we think about the functional nature of anxiety, I define anxiety as a future-oriented emotion that involves thoughts of uncontrollability and unpredictability of future events. Another way to frame that would be anxiety is known as what we call preparatory coping. It's like saying, Nate, I don't know if this is going to happen again or not, but I have to be prepared just in case. So anxiety is what fuels us to shift our activity at the moment in preparation for things to come, right? Think study and test. Think job interview in preparation. Think the big game and doing what you need to do in advance in preparation for it. So in terms of the manifestation differences with men and women, technically the symptoms are the same with anxiety, right? There's the shift in attention away from what you're currently doing, including food. So your digestion slows down in order to prepare you to do the things, the strategies, if you will, to prepare for whatever the future event may be. So typically we have like a, a, a racing heart. We have uh, some palpitations with our heart at times, not as intense as panic, another conversation, but certainly getting your core prepared to shift its attention to what may happen. So you're vigilant and alert um, and your energy level kind of goes up when you get anxious. And the thing about men, though, is that though men have the exact same symptoms, there's the socialization component across gender lines that often skews how men often manifest anxiety. So for instance, what I often talk about with webinars and whatnot with men is that men often manifest anxiety 
with things that are quote unquote socially appropriate or deemed appropriate through things like anger and externalizing behaviors, right? So you see men who have the same symptoms, but we're oftentimes socialized to be hyper-masculine, unfortunately, in many cases, so that we express emotions that are okay, quote unquote, for a boy, right? Like, oh, well, (laughs) it's okay for you to be aggressive. It's okay for you to yell. It's okay for you to scream. When in reality, Nate, I see a ton of men who struggle with the same symptoms as the ladies, but they manifest it in ways that look like different emotions. Well, ultimately, that's a lot of dysregulation. And that's affecting relationships, too. Um, You mentioned that expressing anger. So how does that expression of anger differ from, you know, some of the other ways you express emotion like sadness or frustration? Because you're just frustrated. Uh, what What are the underlying reasons maybe for that difference? Well, that's interesting because when you think about the function of core emotional experiences, it starts to take shape in terms of the differences between, say, frustration and anxiety and anger and The irony of that question, Nate, is that with the exception of, say, sadness, you often find that those same emotions have similar physiological overlap. They're almost indistinguishable physiologically, right? So in other words, heart racing is a part of excitement, anxiety, anger, (laughs) frustration, disgust even, Mm -hmm. right? Your digestion slowing down is viewed as, uh, you know, upset stomach and nausea in the case of anxiety and fear. And yet we call it butterflies when we're excited, but it's the same symptom. It's really ironic. But with anger, it starts with the criteria of what anger even is, right? It's also biblical. But like when we think about anger, anger is the result of what we call a perceived intentional injury, mistreatment, or victimization. Another way to put that is my concept of fairness has been violated, right? Mm. So if I view that criteria as being met, then anger is the natural response to that. And it's always directed toward the source of threat. So anger is always directed toward a person or an entity, right? So if you think about that, you know, your heart rate and whatnot goes up with anger, just like the other emotions. Sadness is the opposite because all of the arousal goes down because sadness serves a different function. Your heart rate goes down. Your breathing goes down. Your energy level goes down. But sadness serves a completely different function. But anger is the one where your body temperature rises higher than other emotions. But it looks the same in many ways. So it, it seems like, I don't know, I guess it depends on your personality or, or, you know, maybe the way you've learned to cope with things, which direction you need to go with that. Or is there like something where maybe one feels better at other times versus, you know, other times you want to be angry versus sad or I, mm-hmm. I, I feel like all of them lead to isolation uh, one way or another uh, with a shame component to it. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Certainly that can be the case. I think what I often find though, Nate, is that most people, and I do mean like 90 plus percent of people, as opposed to 51% of people, tend to not understand the purpose of emotions to begin with. So if you don't know the function of emotions, you're going to respond to emotions in ways you've been taught or modeled or transmitted through like parent relationships or caregiver relationships. So you're not really going to respond to emotions based upon what they're trying to tell you. You're going to respond to emotions based on what makes you feel better temporarily with the Mm -hmm. paradox with that is that that backfires and makes things worse for you. Yeah. And you're, you're never really seeing that because you, I I guess if you're not intentional about looking at the patterns of your relationships, your behaviors and the outcomes of it, like that's just, you're Mm -hmm. just going to skate by on that and it's never going to go well. And like, this is, this is high stakes stuff. Uh, Cause I think I read somewhere uh, it's, uh, men are four times more likely to, to die by suicide each year compared to women. 
Uh, it's mm-hmm. like astronomical. Uh, and so this is something, you know, where we also have men. It's something like one in 10 men experience depression or anxiety. Yep. And that can sound low, but when you start taking the numbers out to the millions of people in the United yeah. States alone, this is a large number of people. And let you mentioned the the, the societal aspect, the stigma. Yep. Now that we know mm-hmm. men are struggling, one in 10 men really struggling, and that's just the ones diagnosed, four times more yeah, likely right, exactly. for suicide. Yep. Mm-hmm. Are they getting help? What's, what's the societal part of that? Yeah, good question. Typically, the answer is no. I mean, think about it, Nate, like the primary way people seek mental health treatment, if they do at all, would be through medication. And medication certainly serves a purpose. So it's the first line treatment. I didn't say it was the gold standard treatment. I said it's the first line treatment, meaning it's the easiest thing to try first, right? So, but again, based on what we said earlier, Nate, in terms of hypermasculinity and whatnot and the stigma attached, not only to mental health generally, which has decreased significantly, but with men specifically, then you have this added problem. Most men don't seek treatment. In fact, most men also with that, you know, the suicide rate you talked about, most men also, you know, commit suicide by much more violent means than women. And that part of that's the hypermasculinity with like guns and things like that and hangings and whatnot. But also, you know, men tend to use substances and abuse those at a much more frequent rate as well to cope with these symptoms. I mean, I can't say that I've ever met a person that I've treated for, say, anxiety and related symptoms in my center who said, you know, Kevin, I struggle with alcohol dependency or certain medications and things like that. And the anxiety is not the precipitating factor. Like substance abuse disorders and substance dependence, 10 times out of 10, are a symptom of an internalizing problem, right? So ultimately, you know, we don't see men getting treatment. The good news, though, is that the men that do, you know, there are resources available and there are a lot of guys today who are increasingly getting mental health treatment because they, you know, they've got come to the end of the rope, so to speak, and they find other men who are in mental health who they feel more comfortable talking to. Yeah, you know, it's just uh, not explaining anything away. Put all the caveats in. People just want to feel better. They just want to feel they better. Do. Um, yep. And they want to, you know, in some cases, they want to be able to feel better so they can do better for themselves and others around them. This debilitation. I want to sidebar on something because, you know, we we go to church and you mentioned the masculinity. And there is a lot of uh, conversation in the church about being a man of God and stepping up and all those good things. And I do think sometimes our cultural um, uh, definitions of masculinity kind of bleed over. We're human. It happens. Uh, let, let me ask you this question, throw it over to you. What steps maybe can the church take to break that stigma around that masculinity that is not helpful in men's mental health? Well, I, I think that's a great question because I think that steps that the church needs to take is first and foremost, we as men and women of God need to acknowledge that men who are, you know, to be called to be high priests of the home and have this divine order and whatnot that we've established by God, men throughout the word of God experience emotions. There's a plethora of scriptures that speak to experiencing sadness and not grieving like the world does, but still experiencing it. We see David, we see a number of different examples of people throughout the word of God who experience a wide range (laughs) of emotions, sadness, anger, uh, disgust even morally, moral contamination is a symptom of disgust. 
excitement, fear even, right? We talk about these emotions. So I think the church has to normalize emotions and the best way to do it, which is what part of my call is in that way, Nate, is to extrapolate scriptures that speak to it, right? So to really speak to men and women of God who are healthy, experience emotions, but they do so in a God-honoring fashion and showing biblical examples of that and incorporating that into sermons and messages and Bible studies and small groups. Like that's one of the things we're real intentional about at my church is, you know, we try to talk about a lot of this content and granted it's, you know, I'm at the church. So, you know, being a, on the pastoral staff and ordained, I don't know if you knew that, but I am ordained in addition to being a psychologist that gives me some leverage to talk about these things, to do exactly what you're saying. So I think having people who are trusted sources in the body of Christ to speak to these topics, whether it be a conference, whether it be a Sunday message, right? Because I travel quite a bit and do these things at other churches across the country and things. That allows the congregation to see that it's okay for men to experience these emotions. And there's a God-honoring way to do that. And there's scriptures that support that. Yeah, the uh, the, the part there you mentioned about uh, the moral moral disgust. Um, I, I <laughs> yeah, want to get Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I'm hearing it. And I'm like, hmm, I want to know more about that because, you know, emotional disgust, moral disgust, all the contamination. Go down that road just a little yeah. bit more and, and how that kind of plays into this as well. Yeah, well, you know, Nate, that's an emotion that I would say to you slang is a slept on emotion. And I say that to say that disgust is rarely talked about. And the reason it's rarely talked about is because it's not understood that well. And what we often find is that, and it's also scriptural, but I say that to say that disgust is a core emotion, just like fear and anger and anxiety and sadness and whatnot. And disgust is always in response to contamination. Think about what happens when we think of disgust. We typically think to use like King, King James type language, but like we think about member disgust where, you know, we get sick or we see roadkill or we see, you know, milk that's spoiled and things. And our natural reaction is to throw up. Well, nobody likes to throw up, but the irony is we all feel a whole lot better after we did. So that's pretty interesting, right? Because (laughs) that means our body's responding to the emotion the way that it's designed. But there's also moral disgust or moral contamination. So there's member contamination, like sickness and things. But there's also moral contamination. And what's interesting about moral contamination is that as believers – Many of us can have the same visceral reaction to things we see going on in the world, you know, based upon a biblical worldview, as we would as if we saw roadkill. You have a visceral reaction when you feel that your core being, your inner man, is contaminated by things you may see on TV, right? Seeing grotesque horror movies, you know, seeing certain language and things discussed in the media. Like those things are what we call moral contamination. And you literally have the same visceral reaction with those things as you would if you had like, you know, a sickness or a virus. Uh, Hearing you say that, uh, hearing that makes it a lot more clearer when people are like, hey, what goes into you is going to affect you. And it's like, no, no, I'm Mm -hmm. good. I can watch this stuff and I I feel all right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's all all good. That's a great, great point. I don't have to put, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't internalize this, but yet, you're, you're feeling an emotion and the more that you use yep. that pathway in your brain, you're going to solidify that pathway with that emotion of, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I feel. Uh, sidebar, yep. sidebar on that too. Um, you mentioned the throwing up and going mm-hmm. back to something else. It made me think of kind of like our own selves. 
Uh, yep. Like if you had an abscess, I'm a nurse. So if you have an abscess, it okay. is so painful. You just want relief mm-hmm. and you'll do anything yep. to get relief. And the moment mm-hmm. that is cut open and the pus comes out, oh. you experience relief and disgust. At the same time. As something that came out of you. Talk a little bit because I love this. We're going down this road. The shame aspect of this emotion of maybe going, you're going down the same cycle of shame again. You're, you have anxiety, yep. you've got depression, you've got all these things, frustration, and you're using some societal uh, norm, as you mentioned, to cope with yep. it. But it's not probably what you should be doing. So you get the relief and you're disgusted with yourself. What does that look like yep. internally for this individual? And is there a way out of that? Yeah, that's that's a loaded question, Nate. Yes. You know, yeah, what it looks like internally is what you said. It's really interesting, right? Because, you know, to use the term paradox, which is often the case with what I do for a living, even, even not only in ministry, but also with, with treating clients, which is still ministry to me. I'm discipling people, right? So, you know, with that being said, we think about the vicious negative feedback cycle. And, you know, we engage in these strategies, especially when we're talking about believers, but we engage in these strategies that are aimed. And you said it best, Nate, we're just simply trying to feel better Mm. in ways that paradoxically backfire, make us feel worse. And that's the paradox. It's, I might say, for instance, drink until I'm numb. Well, that gives me temporary relief because alcohol does that. But the paradox is that relief is temporary and it backfires and perpetuates a negative cycle. So not only do I have negative consequences like damaged relationships, hangover, uh, and what have you, the most important consequence is that my brain now, my limbic system, is telling me the next time I experience intense emotion, I have to go back to that same strategy to, re- to achieve that same level of relief, which again, paradoxically backfires and makes me feel worse. But since I've been stuck in this cycle, you know, it leads to really spiritually speaking, you know, not only in the natural in terms of like more shame, more guilt, which we would call condemnation, of course, but it gives the enemy an inroad into our life. And though God's not distant, we are. Mm. So it, sh- it shifts how we view <laughs> him as opposed to how he views us. And yet the enemy now is convincing us that just like he did with Jesus, right, attempted to. You're, are you sure you're who you thought you were, right? Are you sure that you're able to handle it? Are you sure? So now I'm in this vicious cycle of shame and guilt and condemnation, and I'm trapped until I have some sort of intervention. And it's absolutely possible to have that intervention. But the first step is the acknowledgement that I'm in the cycle to begin with. It's like I tell people, Nate, how many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> So the key is I got to acknowledge that I'm in that cycle and surrender. I got to wave a white flag. And then that's when the steps start taking place at that point. Yeah. You you hit it on uh, that that 100% accurate because it seems like that, that shame cycle, it just keeps isolating. That's all that shame wants to to do. If it can just keep you alone and not reach a counter relationship. And let's be clear. What you're talking about, alcohol dependence, substance abuse, that is very much in our church pews. It is not just Mm -hmm. a problem in a back alley somewhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. We are very good at hiding the negative things so that we have the best perception of ourselves. Yep, that's true. Because I don't don't want to be seen, especially if I'm already in some type of shame thing and I have anxiety and depression and I'm a man and I'm supposed to be stepping up. 
Yep. Ooh, I don't want you to see me because you're not going to like me and you're not going to want to hang out with me. You're going to reject 100%. me. 100%. And, and just one point I wanted to make about that, though, that I think is important for your listeners, though, Nate, is let's keep in mind that the emotion of shame in and of itself is not a problem, to be clear. Like, that's important for me to say. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that because, you know, just like fear, not a spirit of fear, different conversation, um, but the emotion of fear or the emotion of anxiety or the emotion of sadness these are all biblical concepts that we rarely talk about, but at the core, the emotion of shame, just like the emotion of guilt, mm. are helpful if you respond to them in a God-honoring way. If you understand that shame is about failing to meet a personal standard and guilt is failing to meet the emotional result of failing to meet a societal standard, then those emotions are really meant to get you to fix that so that you can get out of the cycle. See, that's the thing. Like you can improve a relationship if you respond to shame the right way. Like being ashamed is not the same as shame, mm. <laughs> right? So I just want to point that out, that it's important to separate that out. Chronic shame is the issue. Chronic guilt or condemnation is the issue. Like being anxious versus experiencing anxiety are not the same. The word of God talks about not being anxious, which I have thoughts about, but um, <laughs> that that's one thing. But experiencing anxiety is not what it's talking about. Mm. It's saying don't be anxious, which is a chronic pattern of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. And it's something, too, <laughs> you know, as, you, as you're going through uh, <laughs> things, uh, there's that pursuit of just knowing everything for sure. I think that does play in yeah. here, that that clarity. Yep. So well, let me let me ask you this, because we're going in the church world here. We're already down this rabbit trail. Uh, maybe yeah. how does the pursuit of, uh, like, theological certainty within the church, within church bodies, uh, how does that impact the emotional and even the spiritual well-being, well-being of, of men, particularly, uh, and their relationship, their feelings of anxiety, doubt on, on these types of things? So the pursuit of certainty, well, that's really interesting, right? Because, you know, there's a term like within or within without the church, the bottom line is for anybody. And as believers, right? Because we can get real legalistic real fast, Nate. That's mm. part of another conversation on another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but but to answer your loaded question, which I'm fine with, is that when we think about certainty, I talk about what's called IOU. And IOU in my world, Nate, stands for intolerance of uncertainty. Mm. <laughs> and people who deem who have a propensity toward anxiety and related symptoms they tend to interpret uncertainty as dangerous when in reality, Nate, drum roll, uncertainty is not dangerous, but it can be uncomfortable. That's a soundbite. <laughs> That's good. Right? Because uncertainty is not threatening and it's not dangerous. But for people who have a propensity toward being anxious, uncertainty is like the devil incarnate. Right? It's like, since I don't know, it must mean I'm in danger. That's not true, right? We can get into faith in things now, but the bottom line is that uncertainty is never threatening. But if I deem it as threatening, I'm going to do everything I can to operate in my other IOU, Nate, which is what I call an illusion of control. Mm. So I'm going to do things that attempt to control things in my environment, which you know what happens when we do that. It gives us temporary relief again, but yet again, it backfires and damages relationships and makes me more emotionally dysregulated. Yeah. It makes me think of, 
you know, like the, the, the amount that we attach to this uncertainty certainly goes back to our learned patterns throughout life. Um, yep. and the things that we've experienced, big T trauma, little T trauma, whatever it might be. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. which makes me want to ask this question. Cause I, I, I know as we're heading here toward the 30 minute mark, I want to get into some of those resources, including yourself and your institution yep. that is helpful for individuals mm-hmm. going through these things. But let, let's, okay. let's go back to maybe those earlier stage developments. Cause I'm thinking I have kids. There's people that are listening that have kids and they're like, I'm trying to get this right, break cycles. And I know that if I, even if I do my best, I'm still going to screw this up somehow. And my child's going to end up in therapy. So I'll have a a resource for them, a number for them to call when they turn 18. But, you know, (laughs) so looking at that, let's go there first. And then we'll talk about resources for the guys. What are some effective strategies or or interventions that you believe can be implemented maybe earlier at the earlier stage, even maybe adolescence to prevent or lessen, uh, lessen the severity of anxiety disorders. I don't know if you can prevent them, uh, but yeah, pitch that over to you. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of different things one can do, but I think primarily it's acknowledging first and foremost, I think Nate, just to back up for a second, like understanding how anxiety is even transmitted is important because like a lot of people don't know that there's not a gene that's passed on per se. It's more so temperament interacting with learned experiences. So it's genetics and environment, I guess is what I'm saying. The irony is you can reprogram all of the above, but that's another discussion. So I say all that to say that the way anxiety is transmitted to begin with is through parental modeling or observational learning is one direction. We know anxiety runs in families, and often what we find in anxious families is that parents who have an anxious child or children who have an anxious parent tend to model behaviors that are consistent with anxiety. So we teach kids at an early age how to think about things as threatening and dangerous, and therefore, as a child, I learn to view everything in my world through the lens of my family of origin. So it's almost like saying my example I often give Nate is, uh, you know, boy, you better put a coat on. You're going to get pneumonia, which is not how you get pneumonia. But that was a message I heard a lot. (laughs) True. So and it's ironic because that's not how you'd all get pneumonia. But if you're a kid, all you heard was if I don't wear a coat, that's dangerous. Mm. And that's all it really takes for a kid who has a propensity of anxiety. So I say all that to say that when you understand that anxiety is transmitted from parent to child through observational learning and informational transmission. And then you have traumatic experiences, of course, that can contribute in some cases as well. But typically it's observational learning and informational transmission with most people, fun fact. But the way you get out of that and like preventative stuff you're asking is oftentimes, number one, is not to model anxious behavior for your kids. I think in some sense, the key is not communicating that things that you might think are threatening are threatening so that you don't plant seeds. Don't get me started on the kingdom of God and everything operating on seeds, but it's true, right? Everything starts in seed form. The words we speak are seeds. The things we say to our kids are seeds and we water those seeds and we have a harvest we don't like, right? So I say that to say that number one, not modeling anxious behaviors for our kids is the single best thing to create preventative methods, right? Number two, is we got to confront stuff, Nate. Like the gold standard ingredient of treatment for anxiety is exposure. Mm. 
What do you expose? Well, situations that occasion anxiety, the thoughts themselves, the physiological arousal attached to anxiety, people, places, things, images. Well, won't that make me more uncomfortable? Well, there's the paradox with that. What goes up must come down. If I confront it, I'll get temporary distress. But here's my elevator speech, Nate. You're investing anxiety for a calmer future. So when you confront things, it's uncomfortable initially. But the irony is it leads to freedom versus when I don't confront things, I get temporary relief. And the irony, it leads to more anxiety. (laughs) True. True. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, with with that, like what I hear is a through line through what you're saying uh, is 100%. If, if you want to help your kids work on yourself, that, that let, part. let them see you working on yourself and let yep. them see that you're not perfect. I, I think it was, uh, Brene Brown who said, if want to be, if you want to be happy, stop trying to be perfect. Uh, cause it, it ain't happening. Yep. It's just not happening. That last part was my yep. inserting on her. <laughs> it ain't happening. Uh, so I feel that though. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. The, and, and just the pursuit of that, that even clarity, that perfection, that's another, that's just a forced shame cycle in itself. Uh, cause you have to hide mm-hmm. the fact that you're not perfect and put it out there, creating your own little world that is an alternate yep. reality that you protect at all yep. costs. That's, that's getting into some mm-hmm. narcissism type stuff, but you know, there's a yeah, whole spectrum is. there. Um, mm-hmm. so without going down that rabbit trail, cause that is a whole, that is a whole episode. <laughs> uh, let's talk, let's talk yep. about the, the grownups, uh, and, and their, their ways that they can, uh, maybe effective approaches for initiating, um, maintaining healthy relationships and conversations around this. Uh, where do you start? Where do you start, uh, with yeah. naming it? Yeah, that's an easy answer. The, where you start is where I would say my bias is with pretty much anybody in any sort of organization. And that is normalizing the emotion itself because the part the problem in many cases, Nate, is that the first, the biggest issue with the stigma is that so few people talk about having fear or anxiety or sadness or anger and those things. So if you don't know what the purpose of these emotions are, then why would you talk about it? Why would you try to normalize it if you're not even sure yourself what frustration is? I mean, most people confuse frustration with anger. They're not the same emotion. Like, So having a very basic understanding of core emotional experiences is the first step by far. Secondly, it's grown folks normalizing the experience of those emotions. People want to see that we're human. So at the end of the day, if I can disclose an experience that I've had with say anxiety and saying, you know, it's normal for you to feel that way. Well, you mean that something's not wrong with me? No, it's normal to experience anxiety. Here's why anxiety happens. Okay. The problem's not the anxiety, right? The problem is how I've learned to respond to it. So when people start having those sort of conversations, either with themselves or with other people in their lives, that's the first step to freedom is acknowledging, first of all, emotions are normal. They serve an adaptive purpose in my life. And in, now that I've acknowledged that as the foundation of the house, so to speak, I can start identifying things like triggers to these emotions. So I start looking for triggers in my environment. What triggers emotional experiences? And what are the consequences to how I respond to these triggers? Like that's a very basic rudimentary part of, you know, getting free from it is now I'm starting to pay attention to triggers. And now that I understand triggers, now I'm starting to recognize ways to engage in strategies that are aimed at me experiencing those emotions in a way that's adaptive as opposed to engaging what I often call emotional behaviors. 
So those are just some 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 tips there is number one, normalizing the emotion. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number two. So number one, normalizing the emotion. Number two, identifying triggers and things related to triggers and how my triggers lead to responses that lead to consequences. And then number three, starting to identify, you know, my, the role my thoughts play in contributing to my emotions. Right. The role my physiological arousal plays in those emotional experiences and the role my behavior plays in those emotional experiences. And then I can learn strategies at that point to face emotions and then overcome. Yeah. What I'm hearing there from you is uh, if you if you name it and you you put it out there as normal and you're vulnerable, which sounds like the exact Mm -hmm. opposite of what you want to do. You're moving yourself from a less than feeling to a or or just a, a, a fact. I'm less than. You're moving it to a same as if this is something everybody struggles with. Mm-hmm. I'm not less mm-hmm. than I'm same as uh, we're all mm-hmm. in this together. Uh, right. And I, I think you'd still have to, at least in my personal experience, have to constantly be working through. OK, no, I am same as I am no less than mm-hmm. no better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I, I do want to we're, we're coming to eh, got a couple minutes left here, 10 minutes or so. But I, I want to ask you this, maybe suggest some daily practices, some routines that these listening men or the women that are listening can tell their <laughs> significant other uh, that men can maybe adopt to manage their mental health, uh, their this anxiety, depression, or, the, you know, people in their eyes. I'm, I'm just thinking of an angry man right now, and I just feel bad for him now because I'm like, yeah. if that's rooted in anxiety, man, they got to be tore up inside if they're just angry all the time. Now I'm less uh-huh. angry with them. I'm just feeling sorry for them. So for people out there that are listening that maybe they recognize this in themselves or someone else, um, uh, what are some of those daily practices, routines uh, that they can adopt for managing their mental health? Yeah, I don't want to be generic here, Nate. And I think that that's always a question that I get because most of the time people want, you know, what's an intervention that I can implement? And, you know, there's there's a whole lot in that, right? So I'm not going to say the standard things like, of course, exercise, sleep, wake time the wake time is the most important component of good sleep hygiene by the way um and all those sort of things all that's important mindfulness practices and things like that but if i had to give somebody one nugget you know it's a technique we often talk about uh in my space we call it anchoring in the present and anchoring in the present is a really useful hack to help you regulate emotions in real time so anchoring has a couple parts so the first part is you got to learn to do something that's going to ground you in the present moment before you respond, right? The word of God talks about uh, being swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath. And, um, and the irony of that is that most people are, you know, <laughs> slow to hear, swift to speak and swift to wrath. And, and it says that the rights, the, the uh, wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God after that, ironically. And I think what's so important about that, is being swift to hear requires us to top, take a stop and smell the roses. So the way anchoring works is the first part is you want to do a deep breath. And basically the way I like to say that I was an athlete in college, Nate. So I like to use numbers to, cause it's really easy to remember things. So I call it four, six breathing. So basically the key is you inhale through your nose for four to five seconds. And then you exhale out your mouth for six seconds. That's going to allow you to be swift to hear, right? So to speak, so to wrath in many ways. So the first part is taking that step back and taking a deep breath before I do or say anything. That regulates the arousal in my body. It stimulates heart-lung synchronization. It's like pressing the reset button. And then the second step is to do what I call either shoot the three 
or what we call a three-point check. And the reason we call it a three-point check or shoot three is because all emotions have three parts. Thoughts, physical sensations in my body, and behaviors. So I'm checking in with myself and I'm being honest. What am I thinking right now? What am I feeling in my body right now? What am I doing or feel like doing right now? Now here's the key, Nate. The doing or feel like doing part is important to be honest. If it's like, you know, not to be violent, but it's a good example. If I say to myself, well, I feel like throwing this chair across the wall, you should say that to yourself. Well, why should I do that? Because you're not judging the emotion if you say that to yourself. You're being honest with what you're experiencing. Not doing that is important, but saying that's what I want to do is also important. So when I say, what am I thinking, feeling in my body, doing or feel like doing, the next step's the most important, and that is saying, okay, what is the most important thing for me to do right now in the present moment? Not what happened in the past, not what I think might happen in the future, the present. Is it that I need to walk out of the room and grab something? Is it that I need to look at the menu? Is it that I need to say a prayer silently to myself? Is it that I need to send a text message to that person? The most important moment in time, Nate, is this one. So the key is shifting my emotional attention to the present moment, not two minutes ago, not two minutes from now, the present. So again, anchoring in the present, take the deep breath, four, six breathing, then say to myself, what am I thinking, feeling, doing, or feel like doing? Once I've checked in with myself and said, okay, got it, anger, or got it, anxiety. What do I need to do in this moment in time that's the most important? The irony is if I do that, the emotion will regulate itself, and I've responded in a God-honoring fashion if I do that. So that's a hack for somebody listening. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a hack, but it sounds like something that's going to take a lot of practice. Uh, Indeed. And I tell people to rep that twice a day when nothing is happening mm. so that it's automatic when something is. You're not going to use a skill like that if you're not doing repetition when things are good. Like if, I, if things are going well, I need to be practicing it then so that when storms happen, I'm like, rather than saying, oh, what am I going to do? No, it's, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the thing that I'm practicing on a regular basis. So you're absolutely right. You don't get a six pack the week before spring break. <laughs> or ever. like a lot of people go to the, you know what I mean? <laughs> or forever, right? <laughs> pun, no pun intended, right? But, but I say that to say is you don't go, like if you're going to the beach, you don't work out the week before. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. You need reps, repetition. So yes, you're right. You nailed it. Twice a day is my recommendation. When things aren't happening, set a timer or an alert on your phone. And then when things are happening, you have a go-to strategy to remind you to do that. Yeah, that's so good, especially when you think about the crisis moments where you're going to need that. The stakes are going to be so high. And, I mean, you wouldn't want to zero in your sight just before you're about to pull the trigger. Uh, you need yep, to be doing right. that on the range a long time before with a lot of practice. Um, so yep. good. Uh, well, I, I do have one more question for you, but I want to give you an opportunity, uh, cause you're a great resource, uh, give you an opportunity to tell our listeners, uh, uh where they can find you uh, and find out more yeah. about you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can find me easily on social for sure. Um, I have a lot of all the regular handles. I have Instagram. So, you know, Dr. Kevin Chapman's my Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Kevin Chapman. Facebook, Dr. Kevin Chapman, but my websites, I have my personal website, which is drkevinchapman.com, or you can go to our center website, the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, aka KY Cards, and that's very easy. It's kycards.com. 
And uh, we'll have the links for some of those down in the show notes. So as you're listening here the last couple minutes, go ahead and scroll down, tap on that, take a look at some more of uh, what Dr. Chapman has to offer there. Um, before I let you go, at the end of our, our episodes, I always love to give the guest an opportunity to speak directly to the listeners. Um, and if there's something that's on your heart, something we've talked about, uh, or something you've just been thinking about lately, if there's something mm-hmm. that you would like to share with our listeners from Kevin, uh, what would that be? Well, I, I would say that one of the most important components that I would want the listeners to know is that your emotions at the core serve an adaptive purpose. There is scripture that speaks to any and every emotion we've mentioned on this segment. And the enemy wants to convince you, especially if you're a believer, that your emotions are a problem. And I'm telling you now, brothers and sisters, that your emotions aren't the issue. How we've learned to respond to our emotions are the issue. Romans 12, 2, of course, talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's really ironic because what we know in the with science and in the natural, if you will, is that you literally can reprogram neural pathways in your brain through renewing your mind. And that's a powerful, encouraging concept. So you can change and it doesn't matter how long you've been struggling with said chronic emotion doesn't make any difference how long you've had it you can be set free from those things if you're motivated to do the work so good so good that's a that's a great way to go out here on this uh this episode and uh i'm, I'm very much appreciative of uh, you coming on the show today and uh sharing your expertise with us dr chapman yeah thank you nave it's been an honor appreciate it and for you the listener thank you so much for listening in if you're listening on apple podcast Give us a follow there, tap that five-star rating, and drop a review. If you're listening on Apple, uh, do that. And then if you're listening on Spotify, rather, give us a follow there. Hit that notification bell to never miss an episode. We're always eager to hear from you. Feel free to email us with any suggestions for topics, thoughts, or feedback. Nate at GreatStoryMinistries.com. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So get engaged. Continue on your journey of restoration. We'll see you in two weeks for another episode. And until then, we'll be praying for you.